see you there. I was just playing with my model Lockheed Vega because I'm at Deception Island and celebrating the 90th anniversary of Sir Hubert Wilkins' first flight on the very spot it took place. Let me tell you all about it. Griffith Taylor's experiences in Antarctica led him to predict that aircraft could not operate effectively there, figuring the southern blizzards would lift the machines off the ground and smash them. Given the events I'll recount, he wasn't far off the mark in his time, but we'll come back to Griffith Taylor's pessimism regarding Antarctic aviation and see how prescient he actually was. After kicking his personal aviation goals in the Arctic, Sir Hubert Wilkins turned his attention south. Eight years after the aviation disappointment experienced under Dr John Cope, who couldn't afford steerage tickets south, let alone airframes, and further aviation disappointment two years later, when the Shackleton Rowett expedition never collected its Avro baby from Cape Town, Wilkins was finally looking at airborne reconnaissance that might serve his dream of establishing meteorological stations in the far south. He had the right airframe in his well-designed and now thoroughly tested Lockheed Vega, and he had the right pilot in Ben Eilson. The support of the American Geographic Society and success in the north helped Wilkins court funding from sponsors such as William Randolph Hearst Jr., who fronted $40,000 for exclusive news rights with an additional $10,000 if Wilkins made a flight over the South Pole. The Vacuum Oil Company, an Australian firm also sponsoring much of Charles Kingsford Smith and Charles Ulm's adventures aboard Wilkins' former Fokker F7, put forward an additional $10,000 in consumables for the aircraft. Wilkins planned to use Deception Island as the base for making survey flights over as wide an area as possible. making the most efficient possible use of such coverage to answer remaining questions about Antarctic geography. He agreed with Hearst's editorial manager, T. V. Rank, that he could, if he kicked all his other goals, make a flight across the continent to the Ross Sea. Hearst's interests in seeing his funding take Wilkins across the whole of the Antarctic continent was geared more to kick over beehives than it was to advance human knowledge in the south. Hearst's particular whipping boy in this instant was Richard Evelyn Bird. Bird wanted to be the first to fly in Antarctica and the first to fly across Antarctica, discussing his ideas for such a venture while still soaking up French adulation for the flight of the America, aircraft version. Balkan, leery of adoring crowds, volunteered to head to Amsterdam to discuss the technical specifications of a custom-built Fokker airframe that might go the distance at a height sufficient not to bump into the Polar Dome with Anthony Fokker's engineers. With the parameters nailed down to Balkan's satisfaction and the order placed, he rejoined Bird for the Atlantic crossing aboard the Leviathan, whereon Bird, Balkan and Bennett discussed expedition logistics. With Amundsen clearly the master of Antarctic operations and now also an established airborne explorer, Bird sent Balkan with a letter deputising the Norwegian to make any necessary purchases on Bird's behalf back to Europe shortly after their ticker tape parade in New York, celebrating the Atlantic crossing, to consult with Norway's second favourite son and ask his advice on how to proceed. En route, Balkan received a flypast from his old squadron in Bergen, caught up with his mother, received a gold medal from the Aero Club of Norway, and stopped for a chinwag with King Harkon VII. A fine homecoming by any metric. Joined by Oscar Omdahl, also slated to head south with Bird, 
he visited Amundsen at his home outside Oslo. Keep in mind that this was before Amundsen was dead, which generally makes for better hospitality and conversation. Having chucked his sledging ways for purely aviation-based explorations, Amundsen donated a large quantity of sledging material to the American project and gave his advice freely. Operate from the Bay of Wales, buy the Samson, a wooden-hulled vessel used in Arctic voyages, though not since the previous century, and take Martin Ron with you. I mentioned at the end of episode 45 that no one aboard the Fram as it departed the Bay of Wales ever returned to Antarctica, but that was before I read the detailed accounts of Bird's first foray south that I looked to in making my notes for this and several subsequent episodes. Martin Ron, sailmaker by trade, served as tent and clothing tailor at Framheim in 1911 and 1912. At 68, he was an elderly gent to consider taking to Antarctica, but there weren't many people outside of Inuit communities who knew more about making effective clothing for operating in polar climes. Balkan heeded Amundsen, purchasing the Samson, a bluff-built barkatine with greenheart sheathing, the slippery wood expected to slide smoothly into leads or to ride above any pressure it experienced, and signing Martin Ron onto the crew, the only man to sail with Bird already possessing Antarctic experience. Where in the Arctic, the multiple nations and projects vying for primacy forced Bird to act quickly, leaving his fastidious nature uncomfortable over many facets of the organisation of his expedition, Bird didn't feel any time pressure to get moving on his southern plans. Intending a transantarctic flight in the first instance, he had a lot to organise to get ships, men and materials to either side of the continent and to coordinate their movements. Where the Arctic expedition rushed to keep up with the efforts of Amundsen and Wilkins, and as many more phantom expeditions that never actually got moving, this time he could organise the equipment and coordinate the logistics, his naval longsuit, in a more measured manner, and play to his existing strengths in negotiating media deals buttressed by a PR firm to maximise the profitability of his project. An Argentine challenge to this idea of a leisurely lead-in arose in the form of Antonio Pauli. Inspired by the robust nature of the Dornier Waal and Amundsen's efforts using them in the Arctic, the Chilean-born mining and railway engineer put forward a proposal that such aircraft be employed to stage fuel and supplies southward from Tierra del Fuego, eventually making a flight to the Pole and, perhaps pressing onto the Ross Sea. The detailed proposal received a great deal of support from the Instituto Geográfico Argentino and the government of Pauli's adopted homeland. Pauli tried to sell his efforts to North American media interests, but didn't get much attention beyond La Prensa. Unfortunately for Argentine interests in the South, and to the relief of Bird, the Dornier while Pauli intended using crashed in Rio de Janeiro, long before he made the first steps towards his austral goals, and the expedition never regained financial momentum. At Ranger Island, there's a leopard seal on the hunt and lots of gentoos in the water. Uh, gorgeous day. Bird began giving interviews on returning to the USA, speculating wildly about what a really well-funded and equipped expedition might find in the far south. I suspect drawing heavily on Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Land That Time Forgot, published a decade earlier, as he conjured hidden valleys featuring flora and fauna as distinct from the flora and fauna the readers knew as the penguin is distinct from other birds, and civilizations as yet untouched by the outside world. 
It was some wild, heady imaginings in the vein of John Cleve's Sims, and I don't think Bird took it particularly seriously, but it made exciting copy for magazines such as Popular Mechanics, which has never been shy about publishing wildly speculative articles written by wildly speculative speculators, though they seem to have finally given up on the Mollusk Skycar after far too long, citing it as being three to five years from the market. Something Bird took very seriously was the role of the aircraft in the future of Antarctic exploration. The dog sledge must give way to the aircraft. The old school has passed, he announced. With the insights Belkin brought from Amundsen in mind, Bird chucked his original intention of a short, sharp shot at Antarctic aviation firsts in the austral summer of 1927 to 1928, favouring a more sedate preparation for the following year and switching from an intended summer only campaign to a summer-winter-summer project. Mirroring the Norwegians' approach to Antarctica, he intended establishing a base of operations in the first summer and spending the winter months making ready all equipment and mentally preparing for the rigours of the following summer's forays. The expedition could depot stores along the proposed flight path to account for all contingencies. Bird even followed Amundsen's example in publishing his intention to use the Axel Heiberg Glacier as his path to the airspace above the Polar Plateau. Amundsen's advice to establish winter quarters in the Bay of Wales stemmed from it offering the most stable weather of anywhere on the continent, for which records existed, and because the barrier surface there comprised ice smooth and level enough to serve as runways. The burgeoning navigational knowledge of Norwegian whalers working in the Ross Sea added another layer of appeal, as people with their eye on the profit margin don't muck about in getting from A to B. Bird's Norwegian contingent in addition to representing excellence in piloting aircraft and engineering skills, offered scope for culturally alert, language barrier-free negotiations with their countrymen aboard the whaling fleet vessels once the expedition reached the Ross Sea. During its transit to New York for a much-needed refit in the Todd shipyard, owned by Bird's friend, William Todd, the Samson, captained by another Dietrichson relative of Balkan, experienced a storm that nearly sank it with all Norwegian sealing hands. The steam engine boiler buckled under the strain placed on it in the attempt to stay at the top of the sea, and the rigging was torn up such that the transit took three months, the cost of the refit ramping up proportional to the damage. In the calm after the storm, with what rigging remained unable to do much in the still air and the boiler out of commission altogether, the radio-less ship couldn't reach New York and couldn't tell anyone why it ran so late. The tidy ship caused further delay with five weeks in the dry dock during which the Samson, renamed the City of New York, received the Barkatine-style rig so popular for so long in Antarctic expedition vessels, a borderline anachronism as the Industrial Revolution, as it applied to ships, really got up ahead of steam. Bird wanted the steam engine converted to run on oil to improve the ship's endurance while working on steam, but the alteration never came about as the money slated for the work went into getting the boiler boiler-shaped again. Interest in the worryingly fast-expanding expedition came in from Paramount Pictures, Putnam Publishing and the New York Times, Bird adding radio sets to the requirements so he could submit copy to the latter direct from the ice. The New York Times approached RCA to request assistance making the hardware to receive Bird's output but the RCA engineers categorically stated the specifications lay beyond the realms of possibility. Instead, the New York Times... Instead, the New York Times' own radio specialists built a dedicated antenna on Long Island, well away from the frequency hubbub of New York, 
leasing dedicated telephone lines to transfer the copy to the newsroom. The US Navy built Bird state-of-the-art radio sets to take south and offered to relay messages through its developing worldwide radio network if the signals couldn't reach the Long Island receiver in one go. The New York Times helped organise a committee, Bird Aviation Associates, to raise funds for the airframes, garnering input from John D. Rockefeller Jr., Harold Vanderbilt, Vincent Astor and Edsel Ford, who donated a Ford trimotor. This threw Anthony Fokker, already noted as not the calmest punter, into a fit. The custom-built Fokker trimotor airframe already awaited collection at the Fokker plant in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Fokker demanded Bird pay up and get his aircraft off the Fokker property. Bird had to borrow money from Ford to purchase engines to put in the F-7 in order to fly it to Dearborn where it went into storage at a Ford site until Bird's underlings found a buyer for the newly unwanted machine. Bennett and Balkan began flight tests with a standard Ford trimotor and while the all-metal construction looked likely to make crating and reassembly easier than the Fokker wood and doped fabric airframes afforded, the Ford product still didn't match the performance stats of its Fokker counterpart. After a six-week test program in Canada and Vermont, measuring fuel consumption and power settings for all configurations and conditions they might expect in Antarctica, their report to Ford highlighted that the aircraft could not hope to climb above the polar plateau with the fuel load required to reach the pole and return. The factory standard fixed pitch propellers and 220 horsepower right whirlwind engines without supercharging left the Ford trimotor underpowered for the task at hand. As per Bird's contract with Edsel Ford, they never mentioned this in interviews wherein the pair invariably stated that the Ford performed flawlessly. Marking a shift in Edsel Ford's thinking regarding customised one-off airframes, a 525 horsepower Wright Cyclone engine replaced the centerline whirlwind engine bringing the climb and load stats up to spec. An increased tankage in the fuselage accounted for enough fuel to make it to the pole and at least off the polar plateau. The flight would need a fuel depot to cross the Ross Ice Barrier and complete the journey. While the Ford Trimotor became Bird's polar flight hope, largely because it came with financial support from Ford that Anthony Fokker had no interest in matching, Fokker's products still received representation in the single-engine Super Universal Bird purchased as a support aircraft. With the test flight series and Ford modifications completed, Balkan returned to the Fokker plant in New Jersey, Oscar Omdahl travelling with him. While in the east, Omdahl took a contract to fly a Sikorsky S-58 amphibious airframe from Maine to Denmark, carrying Mrs Frances Grayson, who hoped to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. But the aircraft and all on board weren't seen again after departing Roosevelt Airfield on its positioning flight northward. As mentioned in episode 68, a lot of aviation was like that at the time. People would climb aboard an aircraft, smile and wave as they taxied out to the runway, fly off over the horizon and then stop being alive. It must really have taken some confidence and or fatalism to pay your way as an aviator back then. On a related note, Ms Amy Guest, also eager to be the first woman to cross the Atlantic by air, purchased Bird's unwanted Fokker trimotor, pilot William Stultz arranging for the fitting of float gear for water operations and making test flights in Boston. Ms Guest's family talked her out of the flight, but aviation promoter Hilton Rayleigh, a gifted PR pioneer who would go on to lead the sonic deception unit of the Ghost Army during the lead-up to the D-Day landings, figuring the publicity opportunity too good to ignore, 
put Amelia Earhart in Guest's place and the Fokker made the flight, landing in Wales on the 18th of June 1928. As the conditions required instrument flying, skills Earhart didn't yet possess, she credited Stultz with most of the flying. Bernd Balkan later taught Amelia Earhart to fly on instruments, facilitating her solo crossing of the Atlantic in a Lockheed Vega on the 20th of May 1932. Delivering Fokker Universals to Winnipeg, Belkin and Floyd Bennett overnighted in Chicago. Bennett, still not fully recovered from the crash of the America during its test flight series, told Belkin that the truth about the North Pole flight sickened him and that Belkin would be shocked to learn it. Belkin didn't press Bennett on the matter, but his earlier doubts about Bird's primacy over Amundsen, Ellsworth and Nabile found enough in these comments to register as confirmed. On their way south from their delivery flights, they test flew a donated Belanca airframe, but finding it underperforming for their needs, flew it to the Ford site at Dearborn for sale as per the Fokker Trimotor. The pair flew the modified Ford Trimotor north for a week of testing the ski undercarriage that Balkan designed for it. The skis worked well on the frozen lake surface. The skis worked well on the frozen lake surface they used as their runway, but the skis lowered the aircraft's speed, and therefore its load and climb stats, to worryingly close to the minimum requirements. Short of reverting to the Fokker, they were stuck with what the Ford engineers managed with the customised Ford product. On On the 12th of April, a Junkers W33 took off from Dublin carrying a German-Irish crew and made the first east-to-west crossing of the Atlantic and then blew 400 miles off course to the north due to a southerly storm. With no fuel left, the Junkers made an emergency landing on a frozen lake on Greenlee Island, a long way from anywhere. The ice runway proved barely big enough for the landing, even with the strong headwind the storm provided, but the crew of the Bremen the magnificently named leader of the project, Baron Erifred Gunther von Hjornfeld, and his pilots, Captain Hermann Curl and Colonel James Fitzmorris, found themselves safe but unable to get airborne again due to the lack of fuel, the bent undercarriage and the balked propeller. Bush pilot, Duke Schiller, managed to land nearby without breaking anything and flew Colonel Fitzmorris out to order the parts and fuel necessary to get the Bremen airborne again. The New York World newspaper owner, Herbert Bayward Swope, asked Bird to furnish the Ford Trimotor and the famed Arctic aviators, Bennett and Balkan, for a rescue mission, adding journalist Charles Murphy to the contingent because yellow journalism, of which see more anon. Bird agreed with Swope that the publicity would help him garner further funding for his Antarctic, I mean, that a rescue mission was the only responsible path for those with the means to effect one and sent Bennett and Balkan north once more. The Bird Custom Ford Trimotor was still in the workshop, receiving the final tweaks requested after the ski test program, so Bennett and Balkan took a hurriedly modified unit fresh off the factory floor. Both pilots were in crook shape for flying with bad colds. Edsel Ford invited them to avail themselves of the Ford Company Hospital, and while Bennett did so, 
Balkan worked through the night to prepare and load the aircraft. Besides the parts necessary to repair the Junkers, they needed cans of benzoyl fuel. Recall that the German engines on Junkers airframes didn't work well when fed with US refined gasoline, tending to catch fire and kill everyone horribly. And skis for the Ford to swap into once they flew far enough north that wheeled landings became dangerous. Balkan and Bennett took off in company with Murphy the journalist, Tom Mulroy, an engineer aboard the Chantier during Bird's Arctic expedition, and two other mechanics on the 20th of April. A few hours north, Balkan noticed Bennett wasn't faring well, perspiring and unable to stay awake. He offered to return to Dearborn, but Bennett excused his state as being due to the discomfort caused by the heater not working. Balkan landed in Murray Bay. While the mechanics fitted the skis to the Ford and Balkan consulted with Fitzmaurice and Schiller about the site on Greenlee Island, Bennett was put to bed in a nearby farmhouse. A doctor arrived, found Bennett's temperature alarmingly high and made arrangements for an evacuation to a Quebec hospital. Balkan, also feeling shitboxed, worried that he'd contracted whatever it was that laid Bennett out. He took Colonel Fitzmaurice as co-pilot, leaving Mulroy to travel to the hospital with the patient, departing Murray Bay on the 23rd of April. The Ford landed at Seven Islands for fuel, delivered by dog sledge out onto the stretch of frozen river that Balkan used as a runway, but the Mercy flight experienced further delays as the morning warmth made the surface too sticky to unstick from the small hours chill of the following morning allowing the Ford a better shot at flying speed. Five and a half hours further north on, the flight reached Greenlee Island, but the tiny lake on which the Bremen landed was too small for the Ford, which Balkan put down to leeward of the island itself. Balkan employed local dog teams to tow the Junkers from its lofty tarn down to join the Ford and the mechanics affected and the mechanics affected repairs. Before the Junkers got airborne, a telegram arrived. Floyd Bennett died in hospital. His pre-existing lung injury disposed him to lobar pneumonia when he and Balkan caught the cold they both endured in the lead up to the Mercy flight. Diagnosed on reaching the hospital in Quebec, the doctors reached out to the Rockefeller Foundation for the newly developed medication that might have helped stabilise his condition. Charles Lindbergh flew it north through snowstorms but arrived too late to make any difference. Leaving the mechanics with the Junkers, Balkan flew the German-Irish crew south, hoping to reach Arlington National Cemetery in time for Bennett's funeral. With the wheels refitted in Murray Bay, Balkan flew through the same shitty conditions Lindbergh battled to get north, flying progressively lower down the Champlain Valley as instrument flight through the cloud layer saw ice immediately start to form on the wings, weighing the aircraft down and fucking up its aerodynamics. On reaching Bear Mountain Bridge as he neared Curtis Field, Balkan was forced to fly underneath. The conditions remained shit and the Bremen crew departed for the funeral in Washington DC by train, Balkan holding out for a break in the weather, which never came. Ticket tape parade held in honour of the first non-stop Atlantic crossing in the hard direction, aviation record caveats coming to the fore once more, held no interest for the Norwegian. Bird attended the funeral, taking a handful of stones from the graveside, which we'll come back to later, and announced the aircraft he aimed to fly over the South Pole would carry the name of his friend, Floyd Bennett.
Balkan recorded an incident taking place while trying to console Bennett's widow, Cora, at the Biltmore Hotel. Quoting Balkan, I said, I'm going to miss Floyd. I know he will be a great loss to the commander. She turned on me with eyes blazing. Bernd, how can you say anything like that? She cried. This is the luckiest thing that ever happened to Bird. Ending Balkan quote. So there's that. I don't know if that actually happened as Balkan recounted it, but it's part of a coherent body of evidence pointing to Bird and Bennett having never reached the North Pole. If that incident did happen, it didn't account Bird's genuine friendship with Bennett, and the death did hit him hard, regardless of what that death potentially meant in terms of Bird's legacy. While the Bird Aviation Associates Committee got the big-ticket aviation items sorted, they found difficulty in garnering funding for the mundanities. Many of the initial backers arose from the ranks of those who supported his North Pole flight, but at the scale the new expedition quickly took on, their contributions weren't nearly enough. With the government leaving most equivalent projects to private enterprise, Bird was forced to go to the various plutocrats, cap in hand, to ask for donations. Unable to offer tax deductions or direct benefits, the rich, who mostly didn't get rich by writing big cheques for the feel-good quotient, could occasionally find the promise of a mountain or a glacier carrying their name sufficiently enticing to open their bank book, but Bird found the fundraising an almost endless sink for his time and energy. Hilton Rayleigh, the aviation publicist, mentioned as having put Amelia Earhart aboard Bird's former Fokker trimotor for the Atlantic crossing in June, volunteered to help Bird get past his funding hurdle. Figuring no one really wanted to write a cheque to Edsel Ford, Rayleigh advised Bird to leave the Bird Aviation Associates out of any aspect of the expedition other than the sourcing of aircraft and associated equipment. While Bird flat out refused to call for public donations, Rayleigh saw the main market for funding lying in the middle class. Once Bird received cheques from enough of these, he made publishing articles naming and praising his benefactors a priority, hoping to, and to some extent succeeding in, generating sizzle. People just can't stop talking about this Fimke. Bird's own contacts and those of his governor brother, Harry, helped place Bird in front of almost everyone who could offer support so the low level of interest in handing out money didn't prevent the coffers reaching key milestones. Bird's efforts achieving through volume in the middle class what he couldn't generate in enthusiasm among the rich. What we now call product placement also generated interest from suppliers, with Bird's underlings learning to ensure brand names faced the camera and catching reprimand from the commander if they missed any opportunity to mention the name associated with a particular donation. Bird in turn catching reprimand from the supplier for failing to deliver in his promise of prominence. While Bird didn't pay anyone, himself included, from the sums donated to get the expedition off the ground, he guarded the right to make money from the publications arising from the expedition jealously. Bird seemed to consider the hero business as much about becoming rich as it was about becoming famous, and both of these factoring into the equation far more than actually achieving anything geographical or scientific. Contracts with the New York Times and its syndicated newspapers, and with Paramount Pictures, came to $60,000 and $50,000 respectively, assuming Bird did actually fly over the South Pole, and the stories remained exclusive to those companies. Bird never revealed these factors to the public or his crew a priori, but I think those people volunteering their time and energy to the project 
deserved to know he was looking to make coin off their hard yards and privations, and that he held a $110,000 bonus in the forefront of his mind while making life and death decisions on their behalf regarding the pole flight. He even sought to mislead people when put on the spot, talking up his exclusive right to sell the pictures arising from the expedition as a necessity because picture sales help fund such expeditions, not actually noting that his own expedition comprised an exception to that concept because Bird personally pocketed any money from those picture sales because he worked so hard to ensure he already covered the expedition expenses. Expedition members, even those receiving no pay, signed a contract stipulating that they wouldn't take any interviews within six weeks of the end of the expedition, and that they wouldn't publish any material relating to the expedition for two years. The diverse range of small contributions garnered on Hilton Rayleigh's funding strategy suited Bird in that no single benefactor held enough leverage to influence anything beyond kicking up about product placement or brand name mentions. To help him coordinate the business side of the expedition, Bird hired Richard Dick Brophy, the business manager and Expedition 2IC, commanding the highest pay of anyone involved in the expedition at $1,000 per month leaving Bird more time and energy to follow up on funding and PR opportunities. Bird frequently referred to this preliminary phase of the expedition as the hardest part of the following two years, and those involved in that phase retrospectively referred to it as the Battle of New York. Then, someone threw a spanner in Bird's works. That someone was William Randolph Hearst, and the spanner was Hubert Wilkins. Hearst's support of Wilkins' project arose from a desire to both sell newspapers and to embarrass his competitors and the establishment. With the New York Times and the big industrial names in Bird's Corner, Hearst saw in Wilkins' habit of showing up bigger, brassier expeditions with his quiet competence, an opportunity to stick it to his detractors among the elites and steal the thunder from a competing media empire. On the 1st of June, Wilkins and Eilson announced their intention to head to Deception Island to first the firsts that Bird called first. Wilkins was a better aviator and navigator than Bird. He had a better plane than Bird, and his lean and efficient mode of running an expedition got results in circumstances when no one else could do much of anything. Wilkins intended making aerial surveys of as yet unexplored areas, but wasn't taking any dedicated scientists, and so kept his project small and nimble. Where if dense pack ice blocked access to the Ross Ice Shelf, or if Amundsen's advice about the barrier surface and weather didn't match what Bird found on arrival, the American expedition would struggle to adapt. If, harking back to the days of Scott and Shackleton disputing who called McMurdo Sound, Bird felt affronted by Wilkins' announcement, he had, like Scott, sufficient good sense to keep that affront under his hat, at least in public. He was extremely suspicious of Wilkins and sent probing correspondents and minions to find out what he could about the Australians' intentions. Wilkins denied he set out to race with Bird, assuring his colleague that he was only interested in survey work. But Bird didn't buy that line, and Hearst actively worked to counter it, knowing that competition sold newspapers. Bird and Wilkins publicly agreed they would help one another in any way possible, Bird going so far as to offer to ferry Wilkins and his aircraft north aboard the city of New York should he make a transcontinental flight. But Bird's later paranoia about loyalty and his legacy suggests he wasn't happy about the newly crowded playing field and annoyed with himself that he delayed heading south into 1928. Hurst is a fairly uncomplicated character, 
no matter how much he might like Citizen Kane. Extremely greedy, power-hungry, and lacking scruples, he fucked over anyone he needed to in order to sell papers, make money, and massage his ego, more often in the form of humiliation of others than as praise of himself. And if the humiliation fell to his former employer and the owner of the New York Times, Joseph Pulitzer, so much the better. Hearst wielded editorial control in his newspapers to express his personal morality, and his sensationalist coverage of Spanish actions in Cuba helped propel the USA into the Spanish-American War. He ordered his papers publish fake interviews, invented stories and doctored images to promote sales and push his agendas, pretty much setting the scene against which responsible journalism fought throughout the rest of the 20th century the Hearst model all but obliterating fact-based attempts at objective journalism in the 21st century. The phrase yellow journalism, denoting sensationalist, sales-based reporting, dates to the Hearst-Pulitzer battle for sales at the end of the 19th century, often being ascribed to a cartoon called The Yellow Kid, over which the publishers fought a bidding war. Anytime journalists allow themselves to become part of the story they report, whether by paying for information, inciting an incident to sell papers, or making shit up because it serves a narrative they want people to believe, they are said to be engaged in yellow journalism. Hearst was the master of yellow journalism, and in winding up Sir Hubert's clockwork, he generated the news his papers could then report. The Wilkins-Hearst Antarctic Expedition was underway. George Putnam led American Museum of Natural History and American Geographic Society expeditions to Western Greenland and Baffin Island respectively, and was publishing aviation memoirs through the family business through 1927, putting to print We by Charles Lindbergh, Skyward by Commander Fitzhugh Green, though published under Richard Byrd's name, and Flying the Arctic by Hubert Wilkins. A publicity photograph organised by Putnam in the lead-up to the latter books going to press is a period who's who of US aviation. Eilson, Wilkins, Bird, Chamberlain, Balkan, Stoltz, Earhart, who became Putnam's second wife, and Gordon. As Jeff Maynard highlights in Wings of Ice, Bird looks the heroic part, standing out from everyone else in his dress whites, worn with special permission from the Navy, as Bird wasn't on naval business during his North or his South Pole flights while Wilkins stares out of frame. The former, a practised hand at the art of the hero business, rarely without a publicity agent. The latter, uncomfortable with the staging, and never one to pay someone else to arrange publicity on his behalf. Wilkins spent all of ten weeks bringing his team, equipment and supplies together. He purchased a second Lockheed Vega he named the San Francisco, the original one receiving the moniker Los Angeles. On Wilkins' request for clarification, London-based Australian diplomat Richard Casey responded that while Wilkins couldn't directly bolster existing territorial claims on the continent for the Commonwealth, it wouldn't hurt if Wilkins dropped British or Australian flags at intervals during his flights, and if possible, photographed them and recorded their positions. With Ben Eilson and his friend, fellow Alaskan bush pilot Joe Crossan, Orville Porter as engineer and William Gaston as radio operator, Wilkins departed New York on the 22nd of September aboard the liner Southern Cross and joined the factory whaling ship Hectoria in Montevideo for the transit to Deception Island, sailing on the 10th of October. Where the scale of Bird's expedition required and received extensive volunteer service, 
Wilkins' lean operation ensured everyone got paid, and in a doubly unusual manner for an Antarctic expedition, Wilkins paid out up front and in full. A stop in Stanley saw the Falkland Islands governor, John Medlicott Ellis, a fellow with an interesting story of his own you might find reward in following up on, confer upon Wilkins the authority to claim any new territory his flights crossed, Casey having wangled the necessary permissions and sent word by telegram. Having ignored Wilkins' every attempt to garner support for his work at every turn in Britain, the Commonwealth shouldn't have expected any degree of fealty from Wilkins, but his patriotism overcame his prescient disquiet over the prospect of competing territorial claims getting in the way of international cooperation on his long-dreamt-of ring of Antarctic meteorological stations, and he agreed to drop Union Jacks on his flight track. Unfortunately, he only brought one with him. Fortunately, a pile of them lay handy in the Governor's office, quickly going into the expedition stores on the quiet, Casey's telegram having implored Wilkins to keep this aspect of his Hearst-mediated explorations secret. The Hectoria arrived at Deception Island on the 6th of November. Wilkins' previous visit during the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition led him to anticipate using the ice in Whalers Bay for a runway, but the ship met loose pack while still 300 nautical miles out, suggesting an early thaw. Sure enough, too little ice remained in place for ski operations in the Bay of Wales. What ice they found was recently frozen and too thin to trust. While the whalers woke up their hibernating shore station, Wilkins' crew fitted pontoons to the Los Angeles and craned the aircraft onto the water. Ben Eilson made several attempts at taking off, but the large numbers of seabirds taking advantage of the food available in krill form in the newly opened waters repeatedly thwarted his efforts by flying up into the propeller. This was bad for the propeller and worse for the birds. Eilson couldn't get a clear run and gave the effort away as a bad job. The birds weren't big, but even a small thing coming into contact with something moving really fast, such as a propeller, can do enough damage to prove problematic. A small aerodynamic or weight imbalance in a propeller will induce unwanted vibration. A vibration can cause further damage quickly, and as Wilkins and Eilson's experience in the single-engine Fokker out of Barrow demonstrated far too starkly, even a small vibration will cause catastrophic problems on a long enough timeline of intense enough work. With skis and floats ruled out, the crew fitted wheels to the Vegas and rafted them ashore. On the 22nd of November, using a short, sloping patch of ground, the nearest thing to flat the caldera rim had to offer, Eilson and Wilkins got airborne in the Los Angeles, making a short test flight, the first heavier-than-air ascent in Antarctica. Joe Crossan followed suit in the San Francisco the following day. Then the snow melted and the runway, suddenly comprising jagged volcanic rock, became unusable. Casting about for an alternative, the best they could find was some less steeply sloping than average ground comprising three separate stretches, requiring a pilot make two 20 degree turns during takeoff or landing. They spent two weeks trying what they could to, if not level and straighten the runway, at least remove the worst of the tyre shredding corrugations and extrusions from it. In the interim, a cold snap froze the sea surface sufficient that Wilkins wanted to try using it to circumvent the worst of the shore runway problems. Alson took off from the crooked, lumpy runway in the Los Angeles and landed in the area Wilkins marked out on the thickest section of the sea ice. But in landing with wheels rather than skis, 
The aircraft skidded past the delineation and onto the thinner stuff. The Vega's wheels broke through and the airframe sank into the bay until the surface area of the wings spread the load across the intact sea ice, sufficient to prevent it joining the whaling station garbage at the bottom of the caldera, likely taking Eilson with it. Eilson climbed out of the cockpit and lay on the sea ice, gasping at his close call and still not out of trouble, inching his way to safety while whalers from the shore station crawled out on the thin ice to attach ropes to the airframe. The first step in an 18-hour operation to haul the aircraft to the beach. With pontoons fitted to the San Francisco and a motor launch plying the water ahead of the Vega in order to scare the birds clear on the takeoff run, Joe Crossan made an attempt at getting airborne from the water. In spite of the motor launch, the seabirds still flew into the propeller arc and Crossan had to throttle back or risk a feather-plastered demise. Back to the wheels and the shipbox runway. Three sections, two of them uphill and 100 yards short of the 900 a Vega needed to take off with a full fuel load, even under ideal conditions on a straight, flat runway. On the 20th of December, Wilkins and Eilson took off with enough fuel for a 12-hour flight. They crossed the Bransfield Strait and circled Trinity Island before heading for the Graham Land coast. Wilkins' autobiography recounts his joy at passing in just 40 minutes along a stretch of coast that previously took him three months to survey and climbing effortlessly over the mountains that previously stumped his and Cope's repeated efforts to summit and which nearly cost them their lives in their blizzard-mediated fall into a crevasse field. Recounting the moment the Vega passed over the mountaintops, Wilkins wrote, no one had climbed to the Graham Plateau summit, and I was thrilled to realise that for the first time, human eyes, our eyes, were going to see it. For the first time in history, new land was being discovered from the air. Wilkins sketched and photographed the geography their route took them over. Half of it observed for the first time, and concluded the peninsula comprised a series of islands with at least three large channels and a strait separating the largest land masses from the continent. He littered the newly sighted landscape with names. Stephenson Strait, Casey Channel, Lurabee Channel, Mount Rank, Cape Northrop, Scripps Island, the Lockheed Mountains, the Bowman Coast, Mobile Oil Bay and Hurstland. There's a Maitland Glacier leading into Mobile Oil Bay and it first appeared in photographs taken during Wilkins' flights in the Vega. But the Antarctic Register of Place Names cites this as receiving the name Maitland in 1952 to celebrate a member of one of the geographical societies. But I have my romantically coloured doubts. I think it was named after Lorna Maitland, to whom Wilkins was engaged. The flight reached 71 degrees, 20 minutes south, 64 degrees, 15 minutes west. While Wilkins wanted to fly west and joined his newly sketched coasts to those better known ones on the other side of the peninsula, a storm forced a more direct route back to Deception Island. Wilkins chucked a Union Jack and a handwritten territorial claim out through the wind drift sighting hatch and Eilson turned the Vega north. The flight lasted 11 hours and covered 1,300 nautical miles. Dense, low cloud socked Deception Island in, 
and Eilson made an anxious descent where Wilkins Navigation told them their destination lay. Alert to the fact that the clouds contained lumpy bits that would end them in short order if they were letting down anywhere than directly above the Deception Island caldera. Wilkins Navigation, bang on as usual, ensured that when the clouds did give way to a view of the ground, the Vega was directly above the shoreline runway. Eilson sideslipped the aircraft down through the gap in the clouds to a safe landing, ending yet another epic flight few other aviators and navigators of the era could have pulled off safely. A second, shorter foray covered some of the same territory, but that was it for the 1928 flying season on the Weddell Sea side of the continent. The two Vegas went into storage at Deception Island and the team headed back to New York, arriving in March 1929. Wilkins, travelling light with the best kit he could afford, got the first of the aviation firsts. Griffith Taylor sang Wilkins' praises, happily eating his words at the development wrought by the new technology. Quote, Just as 1841 and 1903 were wonderful years in Antarctic exploration, so 20th of December 1928 was the most wonderful day, for in 10 hours Sir Hubert Wilkins settled more problems and sketched more new coastlines than any other expedition had accomplished in West Antarctica. End quote. Wilkins caused Richard Casey some concern when on returning from his voyage he openly ridiculed the idea of claiming territory based on flying over it. With that being the best the Commonwealth could presently field in the large gap between the Ross Sea and the Falkland Islands dependencies, Casey had little choice but to put some stock in the gambit, so long as the flag in question represented Britain. As with the previous race in all but name, that between Amundsen and Scott, we see a small, nimble, narrowly focused operation contrasting with a lumbering, all-singing, all-dancing behemoth. To get the Ford to the pole and back, Bird needed to get enough fuel, lubricants and spares to the Ross ice shelf. Better have a machine shop so they could make any parts they might need, and that added machinists to the team. Meteorologists to track and predict the weather for the flight, and that also makes it look like you're doing some science, which the newspapers and magazines love. Get some geologists in there and really bulk up the science quotient, and some dogs and some dog handlers for getting fuel depots depoted, and, if they have any spare time, to get the geologists to within cooey of some rocks, and a galley and a cook to cook in it. Got to keep the tasks separate so things remain efficient. The efficiently assembled team for this efficient expedition totaled an efficient 82 efficient men, 40 or so to stay on in the Bay of Wales for the winter. The volumes of food necessary to keep this mob fed for a year and a half was always going to come to some ridiculously large volumes and weights, but I keep coming across a bewildering figure of 3,500 turkeys. That's a lot of turkeys. Episode 72, part 3, in Paradise Harbour. Very, very light snow. A few penguins kicking around. You can hear the ship in the background. An estimated $450,000 US... <clears throat> an estimated $450,000 US dollar costing kept blowing out. Fortunately, the backing of the National Geographic Society helped with fundraising efforts, and $750,000 US dollars passed through the bird business ledgers, kept at the Biltmore Hotel, where a team of clerks and secretaries clerked and secretiered before departure.
with New Zealand claiming and administering the Ross dependency. Bird requested and received permission to operate from the Ross ice shelf. The USA, adhering to the Hughes Doctrine, didn't recognise the territorial claim, but Bird's expedition comprised a private enterprise. Hoping to use Dunedin as the consolidation point for his men and materials, Bird didn't want to piss anyone off. By doing so, he pissed off subsequent professional and amateur geographers in the USA seeking to diminish Commonwealth claims in Antarctica, but they lay in the speculative future and couldn't pose any threat to Bird's immediate plans, and so he ignored them entirely. If set to music, ignoring the inconvenient truth would stand as Bird's leitmotif. With Bennett dead, Bird assigned Balkan chief pilot and placed him in charge of assembling a team of pilots and engineers. Balkan selected chief machinist's mate, Harold June, as second pilot because, like Balkan, the Navy man also brought a lot of engineering experience to the party. One of Bird's Pensacola flight school classmates and a reserve pilot during the North Pole expedition, former Marine Alton N. Parker took leave from his job with Transcontinental Air Express to join the expedition. Harry J. Brooks, Ford's test pilot, signed on, but like Oscar Olmdahl and Oscar Visting, who died with Amundsen en route to search for Nabile, Brooks died in an unrelated crash in the lead-up to the expedition. Brooks died flying a prototype Ford Fliver, a single-seat, single-engine unit that looks more pedal car than aircraft. Edsel Ford intended marketing it as the Model T of the air, but the company ditched the design after the fatal crash, the beginning of the end of Ford's adventures in building its own airframes. Veteran airmail pilot Dean Smith rounded out the aviators. Operating out of Mitchell Field, Long Island, they began testing the Ford trimotor with loads and flight plans to simulate the polar flight requirements. Army Air Corps aerial surveyor, Captain Ashley McKinley, joined as aerial photographer and due to his rank, something Bird couldn't ignore in spite of McKinley coming from a service other than his beloved Navy and the expedition operating on civilian footing, became third in command overall. Pete Dumas, a cabin boy aboard the Chantier during the Arctic work in 1926, joined the aviation team as an engineer, which also comprised Kenneth Bubier and at the last minute, Benjamin Roth, the only Jewish member of the expedition. If that sounds like I'm being unnecessarily divisive at the outset, I mention his religion because it's a factor in later events, not good ones. As mentioned last episode, Balkan selected a Fokker Universal as the utility airframe and a Fairchild Razorback for aerial surveying, this last being a single engine light utility type optimised for aerial photography with extensive glazing and a vertical camera bay in the rear fuselage, designed, built and donated by aerial surveyor Sherman Fairchild, who also provided the Fairchild surveying cameras Bird intended using from it. The General Aircraft Corporation also donated an aircraft but beyond the pilots nicknaming it the Pooper, I can't find out much about it on account of it not going south, its overall performance precluding it from any useful work in support of the expedition goals. A lot of the design work for the buildings necessary to house all the men, dogs and machines for a winter in the south fell to Balkan, whose polymath education in the Norwegian Forestry Service included drafting. While Bird sought advice regarding ice conditions and possible winter quarter sites from former members of British expeditions to McMurdo Sound, 
he never sought to recruit anyone from Scott and Shackleton's crews. Ernest Joyce tried to arrange a position for himself in Bird's expedition, but his attempt to head south once more came to naught. A core dozen of the fifty men Bird anticipated needing at his winter quarters came from the ranks of each Arctic expedition. The selection process for the balance of the crew moved slowly. No formal advertisement went out calling for applicants, but the high profile of Bird and his project saw the letters and resumes flooding in. Candidates needed to exhibit three things before Bird considered them for a slot. Physical fitness, assessed by Bird's physician, skills of use at high latitudes, and the willingness to work without pay. Naval pedigree, Arctic work, and Masonic handshakes boosted a candidate's chances. In spite of the wealth of applicants for cooks and roustabouts, Bird found the scientific contingent hard to flesh out a two-year gap in a career for uncertain rewards, holding little appeal to anyone with enough standing in their profession to already hold a full-time position at a university or government agency. That Bird initially intended only spending three months in the South may have played some part in the reticence of the scientific community, as meteorologists and physicists would feel more tempted to take unpaid leave if their time away held scope to provide a full annual cycle's worth of data. That situation changed as Bird's thinking on the key flight shifted from a transantarctic crossing to an out-and-back trip, equivalent to that which he told everyone he made with Floyd Bennett in the north in 1926. Where previously his calculations for supplies and materials accounted three months and possibly a year, he now calculated for one year, possibly two. Dr Francis Coman of Johns Hopkins Hospital joined as winter quarters physician and nutritionist. Dr. Lawrence M. Gould, Professor of Economic Geology at the University of Michigan and a veteran of two Arctic geology expeditions, joined as geologist, geographer and chief scientist, the only PhD to sign on. With only one other qualified scientist, geophysicist Davies, in the party, Bird gave the science quotient a nudge by reclassifying meteorological observation and cartography as sciences, adding another three scientists to his staff without any new names coming on the books. Bird sought Arthur Walden as chief dog driver. Walden began his trade as a musher along the Yukon River in the months leading up to the Klondike Gold Rush of the late 19th century, carrying freight to the new claims for several years and then working in the subsequent Nome Gold Rush in the early 20th century. After the Alaskan Gold Rushes, he moved to New Hampshire, where he and his wife Kate bred sled dogs finding success in a mix of Greenland Huskies and Mastiffs. The sire of the line, a dog called Chinook, lent his name to the breed, which became the official dog of their home state. They're still around, but a genetic bottleneck of 11 individuals in the early 1980s put a crimp in the breed's future. Facing the prospects of either inbreeding or crossbreeding with animals from lines thought to have contributed to the breed, Chinook devotees opted for the latter and while 800 animals are presently registered as Chinook, they are likely distinct from Walden's ideal. Gotta admire people who ignore kennel club rules for their love of their doggos though. I've known Vizslers, a breed of pointer that went through a similarly straightened genetic circumstance when a small number were smuggled out of Europe during the Second World War. And those dogs were dumb as fuck and carried more than their fair share of congenital disorders resulting from the resulting inbreeding fest. The Hungarian Vizsla. Canine royalty, only handsome. Mongrels rule, hybrid vigor for the win. Mm -hmm.